Hey there, it's time for the Deeper Podcast. See what I did there? Time, because we're in the series, Time Management for Mortals, and you're mortal, and I'm mortal, and it's time for the podcast. Okay, let's just continue. (laughs) The Deeper Podcast is a podcast all about how we can live lives with a little bit more courage so that we can love the hell out of this world. My name is Reverend Sean, and I'm one of your hosts. And today we're diving into the invention of time. Because did you know that time, or at least how we experience it, is has not been the same. There has been documented, or when we look back at the history, we can see how people in different eras, based on the technology, the culture, and the realities of their lives, had very different experiences of time. And that is both maybe liberating, because it helps us think that how we experience time right now is scarce and linear is not how we have to experience time, but it, that also might feel as we'll hear after the sermon, when I talk to Reverend Gretchen about her experience of hearing this sermon, can also be hard to hear um, because of the ways that um, we're still constrained by how we experience time. So if you haven't been with us in this series, welcome. The last two Sundays, we've really been exploring the way that we are caught in history as a people. And today we're diving into the experience of time in the more everyday sense of it. And so I'm going to share a sermon that is entitled Land Before Time, which of course is an analogy to that beautiful 1988 movie that defined much of my childhood, The Land Before Time, in which a bunch of dinosaurs, after their parents are all killed in a mass extinction event, try to find their way out to that beautiful pasture across the mountains. Littlefoot will always be my hero. Well, without further ado, uh, let's dive into this message all about the intricacies and the complexities of what time is. A few years ago, some of my friends and I gathered for a retreat, I think in January, on the coast of Lake Erie in Ontario. We're staying at a small little cottage. The lake was frozen. Snow was deep. We were there for three or four days. And as we gathered, we made this maybe seemingly strange decision, which is that we removed all of the clocks from the walls. We covered up the flashing lights from the microwave and the oven. We even put our phones away, trying as best we could to escape that notion of time that haunts many of us, the minutes and the hours and the days, and instead try to maybe fall into a new sense of time, one directed by the company that we kept or the urges of our bodies. I mean, it seems absurd to look at the clock and decide you're hungry to eat, after all, and yet how many of us do it? It was magical. It was magical to find ourselves at 9 p.m. having dinner. I'm sure we would have forced ourselves to eat earlier if the clocks had been up, but we weren't ready for that. We luxuriated in an experience of time that seemed to flow. Each moment felt full and not scarce, thick, velvety even, what Richard War might call deep time. The lack of these chronometers was less disorienting as it was reorienting. 
no longer beholden to that sense of time ticking away. We just surrendered. What could the clock tell us anyways about that moment that we didn't already know? What does it mean, really, to keep time? Is time always kept, or can it be wild, unkept, and free? What time are we keeping anyways? The answer to activist Grace Lee Boggs' powerful question, what time is it on the clock of the world, cannot be displayed on a watch face, be it digital or analog. What time is it on the clock of the world? That question points us towards something about time that isn't about time keeping. Yet day to day, how we interact with time, at least in white Euro-America, is mediated primarily by time keeping, by schedules, by alarms, and by deadlines. We want trains to run on time, worship to last its appointed hour, guests to arrive at that unspoken 15 to 30 minutes after the advertised time. We keep time, keep up with it, and in return, time often keeps us. For those of us who subscribe readily to the cult of timekeeping, time keeps us safe. We know when to show up, how long things should take. We find ways to spend our time balancing competing desires with color-coded schedules, alarms, and stopwatches, or maybe just a general sense that clocks and calendars are our friends or allies, even if they might be a little annoying. For those of us who struggle to subscribe, time keeps us feeling out of sync, maybe even defective, never quite able to keep up or knowing how to manage our time. Keeping time, at least the way we do it, keeps us beholden to time's supposed objectivity, as abstract as it may be. A second is officially defined as the frequency of a cesium-133 atom pulsing at a lab in Boulder, Colorado, when it meets a certain hertz threshold. A tiny dictator of seconds and minutes and hours and days and years and decades and a lifetime. But what can cesium tell us about life that we do not know already? What does cesium know in its pulses that can instruct us in daily life? Or put differently, who made cesium king? And for what purpose? You see, the average human life expectancy is about 4,000 weeks. A finite amount of time in the scope of the immense infinities of time, and yet infinitely bigger than having never been born at all. To live in time, we must contend and confront our finitude, the finiteness of our weeks, and embrace it. Now, we Unitarian Universalists make no collective or definitive claims as to the existence of life after death that might extend this infinity. We approach this question with an appropriate agnosticism. 
shifting our focus from the end of that stretch of weeks to the intervening time between birth and death. Thus, how we manage our time, the time we know we have, becomes of utmost importance. This can translate into a posture of curiosity of how we can return the gift of life in kind, but it can more easily morph and cast time as the enemy. Our short time on this earth becomes an enemy to be managed, comfort, conquered, and confronted. Suddenly time is scarce and life moves too fast. How can it be three o'clock already? How can it be January already? How can it be 2023 already? I thought it was just the year 2000. Even the new age or more mindfulness version of this, of simply living in the moment, can place a degree of pressure on every moment to be filled with meaning and fulfillment that is unrealistic to life itself. It might surprise you, as Benjamin alluded to, that if we traveled back in time and you met the average medieval European farmer, they would not experience time as scarce or moving too fast. And it's not simply because they worked less hours than the modern American worker, which they did. As American cultural critic, critic Lewis Mumford writes, we imagine time here in 2023 to be something separate from us, separate from the world around us, an independent world of mathematically measurable sequences. We cannot deal with any questions related to time without visualizing a calendar, a clock, or some way of representing that abstract reality of time concretely. I mean, if I asked you, how are you, how are you gonna spend tomorrow afternoon? Well, your first thought is probably, well, it's a Monday. Or if I ask you, what did you accomplish last year? You tick through the months. But for our farmer friend, before the advent of clock time, there was never an abstract experience of time. There wasn't a need to experience time as such. You got up with the sun and went to bed with the dusk. The days varied by seasons, but seasons came again and again. There was a sense of timelessness of time. You would milk the cows when they needed milking, and you would harvest crops when they were ready. Imposing some external schedule on these tasks, like trying to harvest the crops before they were ready, or get all the milking done for a month in a day, would be considered ridiculous. Because the work of a farmer is infinite. There is no racing towards completion. Historians call this work, this way of living, task orientation, because the rhythms of life emerge organically from the tasks themselves, rather than being lined up against an abstract timeline. You, you might be thinking, well, back then, time must have moved slower. But again, slower compared to what? If you'd never experienced a clock, how would you explain how long something would take? If you never thought of time as abstract from yourself, things simply took the time that they took. Imagine the mental freedom of things getting done 
in simply the time they take. What would shift in your life if you adopted a similar posture? Think about it. What would be liberated if you had the freedom to simply complete things in the time that it took you to do it? No longer beholden to some abstract calendar or time or deadline. What would be different? And who would be let down? Or who would get upset? I mean, what if this sermon took longer than a week to write and I simply canceled worship till it was done? What would be upset with that orientation of time? We've recently seen what can happen if our global supply chain, in our global supply chain, when one part of it shuts down, or when one port exceeds their capacity, the nature of just-in-time delivery and manufacturing dictates a high degree of precision and coordination. I mean, the manufacturers of semiconductor chips can't take how long it takes if they're to be part of a highly efficient assembly process spanning three continents. I think it's instructive that at least for me and maybe you, when I thought of what it would mean to adopt that attitude, that the first concerns were primarily economic or work-related. It's not surprising because our Euro-chronological experience of time, that is, the experience of time rooted in white Western Europe, was constructed not simply because of the technological innovations that were widespread of the time, said another way, it doesn't just, or just because we invented the mechanical clock doesn't mean that we invented this experience of time that we are living in right now. It was the specific economic, there was a specific economic and political agenda that was being advanced at the same time, which aimed at streamlining human labor in alignment with the Industrial Revolution shifting people into shift work in factories rather than in agricultural settings meant you had to control and comport people in ways you didn't have to before. You, in a sense, turned their time into a commodity where it wasn't one before. Time, or our experience of it, is not neutral. Our experience of it in this 21st century is not the natural experience of time. It has been a battleground the world over. European colonial forces have attempted to standardize diverse local timekeeping practices that reflected the community's established patterns of life across the globe in order to facilitate increased global trade. If you ever struggle with this experience of time, feeling out of sync, not able to manage it, figure it out, like you're not able to produce things in the ways that other people might expect you to. It's because this type of time was imposed on them. It's not natural. I'll give you an example. In 1906, in what is now Mumbai in India, the British colonial government attempted multiple times to impose a new time zone on India, Indian Standard Time. The British colonial government under Viceroy Lord Curzon attempted in 1906, after failing multiple times, to do it again, shifting the time in Mumbai by 38 minutes and 50 seconds to align it 
to the other cities in their area. Resistance against this was strong. Crowds gathered in the streets. A petition 15,000 strong was delivered, all trying to keep their local time. But when their demands weren't met, textile workers refused to work and the office of the, quote, timekeeper's office was vandalized. You might be wondering why. Why would people feel so strongly that they would strike and riot against a shift in time? Well, first, we have to think of the colonial perspective, right? This was an imposed time by the British colonial government, a symbol of their subjugation. So, of course, there was going to be resistance to its imposition. And there were practical implications in the daily lives of the people. For the time that they had selected in their community was built around the rhythms of their community, rhythms very connected to the time the sun rose and when the time when the sun set. And under this new time, mill workers, again, industrialization, would have to start their shifts at 6 a.m., which would mean they would arrive at their work before dawn, disrupting various religious ceremonies and observances and the casting of horoscopes, upsetting those practices of how time was constituted relationally with each other rather than this imposed sense of when six o'clock is. Now, while the government went ahead with it, they did allow the mill workers to start their shifts at 6.39, which was the old six o'clock, making a little concession. And there was resistance, and Bombay time, as it was known then, was kept by most businesses and local governments for decades to come. Meaning that if you got an invitation to attend a meeting in Bombay, you had to figure out what time zone that was in. For example, if the time was listed as 7.51 p.m., you'd probably surmise that they meant 8.30 p.m. if you were using the other time zone. You might be thinking, so what? Well, the concept of time that we have ascribed to our experience of having life, this dimension of reality, reality is at once measurable and objective and also fundamentally imaginary. Said another way, how we experience the blip of existence that we call our lives has more to do with the culture that tells us about the nature of time than of the nature of time itself. Which means we can shift our experience of time together. We don't need to be beholden to these ways of commodifying our time we practice a new way of being. One of the parts of my grad school experience that I loved is I got to take classes at other, the other grad schools in our university. And I got to take a course on Native American nation buildings, a course put on by a professor that did uh, partnership work between the university and native tribes around the country. The professor, the head of this program, was talking one day about the partnerships, and it can be challenging. He was a Euro-American, and so he was working cross-culturally with many different indigenous nations, and he's had to learn a lot about how that cultural differences work. And of course, it's not the same for each indigenous nation. He told one story of working with a tribe, I believe it was in the American South, I can't remember which one it was. He was trying to figure out if the program that they had been working on was actually going to come into being. And he was talking to the tribal 
the elected tribal official about it, a good friend of his, and he said, I really need to know, like we got this grant money lined up, timeline, right? We have to use it or lose it, timeline, right? And so I wanna know if we go forward, when do you think you're gonna know? Don't you have a tribal council meeting coming up where you're gonna vote on this? And his friend replied to him, I think I'll know whether or not we're gonna go forward with this at one of the half times of an upcoming NFL game. The professor was confused. This was not the time the tribal council would meet, the appointed time. And he asked, what do you mean? His friend said, well, I'll probably be attending one of the games at one of my friend's houses. And at the halftime, I'll probably wander into the kitchen to get some food. There, some of the women and the elders will have been gathering and talking and making the food for us to enjoy together. And one of them will probably pull me aside and tell me that they've made the decision about how we should go forward with this project or not, but that he couldn't rush it. That decision would take the time it would take based in the relationships, based in the sense of readiness, or maybe even what time it is on the clock of their nation. And so he would know probably in that moment, at the halftime, whether or not the project would go forward. Another way of speaking about this notion of time, that specific idea that there is a right moment or when relationships align, a way forward opens is this idea of kairos. That no schedule, no timeline, no clock could predict when that moment would open. And yet for those of us stuck in the world of timekeeping, how frustrating it is. And yet how well we know how the right time is often never dictated by the face of a clock. I wonder what it would feel like to be freer, to be more fluent in many different dimensions and manifestations of time. How much more readily we would be able to build relationships across cultural differences when we didn't assume that our way or the way we have been steeped in was the dominant way. Amen. And blessed be. So after I finished preaching, I walked into the office and uh, Gretchen, my colleague, uh, came into the office and said to me, you know, your sermon just made me feel sad. <laughs> Which <laughs> was not the intention uh, of, of the sermon, but I, I was curious. And so I thought I would invite Gretchen on to talk a little bit about what she meant and kind of unpack it a little bit, because it was interesting on one of the services, there was definitely a feeling of heaviness um, after, after the sermon. And so I don't think it's probably an experience that is alone or is unique to her. So, hey, Gretchen. Hey, sorry. I did. Oh, I, I can't do it. Sorry, about that. I think I, all right, try. Hey, Gretchen. Hey, Sean. So I didn't mean to make you feel sad. I didn't. I I I didn't mean to have that be my only comment about your sermon. <laughs> Sorry about that. But I I mean I it wasn't a critique. It was more a, a 
a puzzling on my part about, as we talked about that uh, topic that I knew you were preaching on, um, it wasn't what I anticipated experiencing. I really expected a kind of fun history lesson about the concept of time and the way it's played out over um, human history and, um, you know, something kind of interesting and intriguing and that would help expand my concept of, you know, how to engage with time now. That was, that's what I anticipated. So I just didn't think it would put me in the feeling place as much as it did. That's what I meant to say. And it did really, I just, and it could have been where I was going into this, but that's. Well, say more about that, the, the feeling place and what it evoked. Well, you know very well that I have some uh, struggles with time. And I can't remember what you said exactly in the sermon, but it was like, basically, if you aren't good at time, there's a reason. And that's because you're not meant to be in this. It's not natural or some, I can't remember exactly the word you used, but, you know, it's like other things that we deal with in the world and that I, uh, I don't know. I just felt caught and a little um out of sort like more directly out of sorts with the ways of like what what my own like you know you're like you you talked about like things take the time that it takes mm-hmm. um and i that is so deep deeply my orientation and i it has been my whole life so then the way that i manage that is i just don't don't sleep as much as I should, um, and you know, kind of squeeze a little extra things. I manage some multitasking, but otherwise, I mostly just live by that uh, um, thing. And so, anyway, that I have to then not live like that, and instead be forced into a rhythm that is. It means I can't. I can't. I can't see the thing through in the ways that I love to and that makes me deeply happy is I don't know I just felt sad and caught mm-hmm. and um sad for all of us in a way right the sense that it doesn't have to be this way and it hasn't always been this way is maybe not liberating when there isn't a sense of um, the possibility of a collective shift. And so you are having to be an individual, as an individual, taking on the brunt of dealing with the, the mismatch in chronology, um, always adapting to it or facing the consequences, taking that burden on yourself rather than any sort of systemic shifts that could could make it so you could feel more in time. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's something I suppose I mean about like, maybe this is just kind of where I'm at and I came to it with this feeling, but I have to say, I'm in a, just a moment of my life where I've been coming to terms more with the limited nature of time and life. 
And, you know, I've, I'm just, my personality, my whole growing up, I know this will not be a shock to you, but it's just generally like, just such a deep optimism about what was possible in the span of time. And, um, and a real joy in being like, yeah, but I, I still think I can do it all. Mm. Um, and not just do it all as in get it done, but get it done like amazingly and, uh, at the best of my ability. And I, I have just been really living with, it's not just the, it's not the series itself. It's like my stage of life and kind of coming out of the pandemic and dealing with, you know, the, the limits placed on our capacity on based in the, um, construction and just what we are and aren't able to do some very real limits. And I don't know, my, my children being 14 and 17 and sort of seeing this, like what their childhood has been kind of coming to a certain transition and close. I know I I can hear all the parents of young adults out there laughing at me, but, you know, just kind of natural reflection on that and my own of what stage of life I'm in and that I'm, I feel like there's, it's like, oh, maybe I won't do. And then there's like things I might've thought I was going to do because it's just not, there's not going to be time in my life to start that. Anyway, all that to say, I was really in tune with that shift in myself in a sense of coming to terms with the limits. And just like our series says, embrace your finitude, but I just didn't, I don't want to, I think it's sad. And I, I just want more time. Mm-hmm. And there's a great degree of loss and grief that I hear in just well, the loss of um, what was imagined and what was hoped for in, in that imaginary future that you were kind of all just constructing, imagining, but also like living into and starting to build. Yeah. And, and also not even just imagine per se, but just an imagination of imagination, mm-hmm. which is that, um, you know, a kind of ongoing sense of the possibilities aren't just there beyond what I can even foresee. And instead to think, okay, well, anything I might foresee that I don't see now means I'm the things I do see, I would have to not do. You know what I mean? I mean? I'm sorry. This is very depressing. <laughs> I mean, I, it, one way it could be is depressing. I wonder if there's, is there like a value or um, an orientation towards life that you would keep or hold fast, even though? the realities of your finitude and the ways that time or our current experience of time is probably not going to shift in your lifetime. Like, is there something life-giving in that orientation that is keeping you fast to it? Not yet. I'm like, what I feel about this time is it's actually a time of great um, transition and discernment. And in that I feel 
like I just don't know yet exactly the the other side of living differently and I guess I should also acknowledge the pandemic as an impact and all of that I think we we talked about that as we prepped for this series that kind of coming out of the pandemic a sense of um wanting to fit everything in that you couldn't do or lost time or um and also simultaneously like needing to actively overcome the habits that were built like the shrinking of your world habits that were built during the pandemic anyway i think like all of that is at factor 2 for me and that i think um i'm kind of discovering I don't know how to right size the, my vision. Mm. And I just don't, I've never lived like that. Mm. I just have to think like, what is the, what is a way to be imaginative while acknowledging limits? And I just don't know. I, I haven't, I don't know what that is yet and how to find a real creative source that is that is in the midst of that. One of the pieces that didn't, or that I, one of the pieces that I feel kind of stuck on in this piece because at the end of the sermon, I kind of invite people into, you know, there's an invitation to practice a different relationship to time. You know, whether it's, you know, considering that that sense of how long things will take and allowing them to do so, or that sense of what is the right time, getting getting a sense of like uh, the time isn't just about an appointment, but about our ripeness. And and detecting that, that it could feel, it could feel urgent, it could feel necessary, it could feel like something needs to happen, and yet, at the same time, it may not feel like something is ripe. And and how did what to do with those two um, conflicting realities? And I think I hear some of that in what you're saying of that there's an urgency um, in in the world. There's an urgency in the day-to-day. And there's also these other questions about what are we ready for and what are we building and how long does it take to construct that and and to be truly, you know, to to move at the speed of trust, which can be fast and can sometimes be so slow. Um, and just the the gap between those two things is a, is a challenging place to be in. And especially when one side has the foot on the scale. Yeah. Our, our, our commodification, our sense of urgency, a sense of scarcity, a sense of, um, necessity even. I mean, I think, so another line from your sermon that I just, I responded 
hit me um, personally was you, you said, what if writing this sermon took more than a week? Mm-hmm. And like, that's a grief that I feel like I live with all the time. <laughs> and I, you know, in order for us to be available on Sundays and be, you know, show up and offer worship, there's a kind of inner violence. And I, I know that seems extreme to use that word, but that I experience by having to kind of make meaning and create and deliver and, uh, and assure and, and integrate every Sunday. And there's no way to get around that. That is, you know, we can say, well, we just offer what we can on Sunday and there we, we, um, if it's not done, then we offer what, what, what we are able to say, but that doesn't work for me <laughs> like that. I, 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 I have to get to Sunday with a sense of integration, even if it's not final integration, even if it's not final assurance, you know, which it never really is, but that, and so like that requirement of our vocation is really hard. And it's something that um, it's just an inner tension, a paradox of it's my like very favorite thing about what we do. And it also is um, really hard and that it just, it requires pushing something that um, maybe we'd, it just, it, it might've been better if it was given more time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I, and and I was, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about my experience on the opposite of that, mm. which is that um, without the deadline of Sunday, I don't think I could come up with something. Mm. <laughs> like there's something for me in the finite amount of time that is both energizing and constraining because it tells me that I'm not going to be able to get it all right. I'm not going to be able to craft anything near perfection, which isn't what you're saying, but like the voices, right, that get in the way say that. Um, I'm not going to be able to feel complete about it, finished with it. And that allows it to actually be born in its <laughs> incompleteness. Um, that being said, I mean, there are some times that, yeah, I wish I had another week. I wish I had another month. I wish, I think sometimes I look back on some of the sermons that I that I preached early in my time. And I'm like, well, I think I preached that before I was ready. Right. Before, like, there's a way of like having lived there's a necessity of having lived longer or lived with a different experience of life. And yet I still preached that. And what, what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, there is, I will say in that, that reminds me of, I have returned to sermons more often this year and um, 
I have not, even though every time I say, I'm just going to reuse a sermon I've written before, I really have never done that yet. Um, I What I do is sort of re-encounter the sermon and then rewrite it. Um, and that I have loved doing that because it allows that kind of integration I know that I didn't get to the first time and uh, like a seeing through it. That's That's what I mean about it. Like it's not, it's definitely not um, about perfection per se. It's just like there is something where I know if I if I gave myself more time away from it and more things around it, coming back to like encountering it again and again comes to a deeper understanding of what it is I'm trying to say. And that when when it comes, like that is such a sweetness and that's like, you could apply that to anything else in my life. That's that kind of concept. And that sweetness is, um, that's, I think the grief that I'm talking about, you know, that that's just such an, an impossible thing, um, in given the finite, the finitude of time and that things are not, we do, our rhythm does not work in a sense of letting it be and then letting things emerge and then letting things come when their natural cycles come. Um, Sunday comes every week. Sunday comes every week. And yet Sunday comes every week. I mean, I feel like there's a beautiful <laughs> paradox in this, right? Like both the, um, that there's a perennial Sunday, which can mean that like, as you say, it needs to get done and we don't have this time. And then there's another Sunday. Right. There's going to be another Sunday. I mean, so I have a preaching group and I preached um, not this sermon. I preached the collection of interesting facts that uh, some of which made into this sermon to my preaching group <laughs> on Thursday <laughs> before this, this sermon. And, um, you know, it was, I appreciated them saying to me, well, someone said to me, one of my colleagues, this, there's like a whole sermon series in here. Which one are you gonna pick? And that was like freeing and grief filled. Freeing as in the sense of, oh yeah, I don't need to say all the things, which I know is your deepest pain. It is. My deepest pain is, I want to connect all the things to make sure that they all have integrity. But that's actually not the purpose of a sermon. So hilariously, just as I said those words, my next meeting appeared in our Zoom waiting room where we were recording this, and we had to cut our conversation short. These questions of time, the grief of time, the reality of time, how we live in our finitude they are so personal and yet they are so collective and how we answer these questions isn't just well it's not just something that we can do on our own we need a community we need a culture shift if we're to well really create more capacity for ourselves to live into very different experiences of time and so um it's just funny that the realities of time and the hopes that things will take the time they will take, uh, they are in fundamental, like they clash fundamentally so much of the time. 
and that's just part of the complexity of living. Well, so hope you appreciated this conversation, this little insight into the world of our brains and also this experience of time. Next week, Reverend Elaine will be sharing all about the feeling of, can I get a do-over? There's those moments where you feel like you just want a chance to try it again. So hope you're going to be joining us, and thanks for listening.